Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and joining me today, Lou. How's it going, Lou? Pretty good. How are you doing tonight? Uh, it has was one of those days at work. One of those days where, you know, I, I just kind of wish I could come home and play video games and destroy things, but I'm podcasting, so... <laughs> You know, and it's it's a spiritual thing. You know, you, it's just when you have those days and you just put the face of your boss on the characters and you just, it works great. It's a great stress relief. Exactly. And, you know, and it's like even back when I was a kid, you know, when I had a, when I got my first Nintendo and, you know, sometimes you had a bad day at school. And, of course, sometimes you really got to watch what you're playing if you've had a really bad day. Um, like some games like... Okay, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the NES. Oh, wow. Yep. Probably not a good game to play if you've had a really crummy day at work. No, no. Um, and it's, that's one of those that it could turn your mood even worse. Yes, especially that stupid damn, that damn, damn stage on uh, level two. <laughs> yep. Yep, you old school gamers, you know what we're talking about. And, I mean, I'd have to say one of the games that I always really, really enjoyed playing if if I had a terrible day was actually Tetris. I can buy that, yeah. And because, well, granted, after a while it gets a little more hectic when you're starting to get near the top. But, you know, for a while it, it is, you know, it's a nice relaxing game, at least until it gets to the point where things start coming down at half the speed of light. Yeah, you know, when you start moving to about maybe eight or nine is when it starts to get a little bit more, okay, now i got to focus. But yeah. earlier in the stages, especially for playing with no garbage, it's you're right. It's very therapeutic almost. Yeah, especially for me, Music C, where it has more of like a kind of like a dreamy, soft effect. I don't I know. That's personally my favorite of the three uh, tech pieces on the, the NES version of Tetris. You know, and I... I actually, I would, I actually, you know, thinking about that, I think I would agree with you on that one because it's very, it's whimsy. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's probably the the best word for it is like kind of a whimsy dreamy is the way I would say it. Um, My relaxation game actually was Mega Man 2. I can see that. Because it was something where you choose your path. I mean, granted all paths lead to the same final destination, but it was just one where you play it and it's fun. I mean, it's not one of those games that's so hard that you make, take three steps and you get hit by something and die. You've got a life bar and it's just fun. Yeah. And I have to agree with you on that. Of the Mega Man games I've played, two is my favorite because I think it has just the right level of difficulty. It's not super easy, but it's also not that difficult that you want to throw your controller against the floor, something that I'm sure a lot of us old school gamers can relate to. That was Mega Man 3 and 4 for me. Um, I nearly broke my hand playing Mega Man 3. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this actually does tie into our topic rather nicely because today Lou and I are going to be talking about video game music. And I don't know about you, but honestly, I think that. Music is one of the things that can really make or break a game for me. Um, I mean, granted, well, let's see where we stand on this. If you had to choose one thing in a video game that makes or breaks it for you, what would it be? Oh, God. One thing, I would have to say control. 
Same here. What's your rationale? My rationale is that you could have the prettiest thing in the world, but if you can't control it, there's no point. I mean, it's it's a losing, you know, if you're trying to run around, like imagine Mario, but sliding all over like the floor is iced all the time. It wouldn't be almost too difficult and it just wouldn't be any fun. I mean, I want my controls to be tight. Exactly. Same here. And uh, control, that's my number one thing because I want to feel like I'm the character. You know, I want right. to feel that I'm this, you know, awesome hero running around. I don't want to, you know, feel like, you know, I have all the agility of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> and as you were saying, I don't want to be slipping and sliding around like I'm on ice. You know, I want to have that nice unless, tight unless control. it's intended. Exactly. Oh, ice stages. Don't get me started on ice stages. <laughs> yeah, I'll take an ice stage before an underwater stage any day. Uh, that's yeah. Those are the two types of stages that I think players either love to hate or they're they they don't mind, but they they don't really look forward to them. And I'm sure that's a that's a topic for another day. But yeah, and I, I'm just going to touch on that one second. Water Temple from Ocarina of Time. That's all I got to say. I have not played a lot of Ocarina of Time, but I oh. yes, I've heard the Water Temple was pretty uh, frustrating. A pain in the butt. So, but video game music is something that can definitely make or break a game. Now, again, as both, I'm sure we both agree, really awesome music isn't going to save a game that's, you know, annoyingly difficult or that has absolute terrible play control. Right. But, you know, it can certainly help make the game a bit more enjoyable. I would agree. Um, there's there's plenty of examples I'm sure we can probably think of. Um, one thing for me, and this is fortunately the game was good and the music was equally as good, even though it was, as we've discussed before, Nintendo hard was Castlevania. Oh, yes. I, I actually did an entire episode on the Castlevania series um, way early on. But yeah, that's one of those games where, you know, while it was difficult, the music really kept you going. Oh, yeah. And granted, later in the game, it did recycle a couple of them. But, you know, I mean, for the 80s with 8-bit times, I mean, that was not unexpected. I mean, Super Mario did that. I mean, you hear the same four, what, four different themes, and that was it. But, I mean, they had different, I want to say at least five or six different level themes for the original Castlevania. And getting to the next one was just like, oh, I haven't heard this before. This sounds creepy, or this sounds cool. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure we'll go into Castlevania uh, more later, but uh, I mean, it's one of the things that's really interesting when we look back at video game music is just how it's really evolved over the years. How back in the early days of, you know, the, I think it would have been like the second and third generation when we were around the 8 bit consoles, mm -hmm. where you know, it went from being bleeps and bloops to, you know, when we started to get into the 16-bit era, the music started to sound a bit more realistic. And then, of course, nowadays, you know, a lot of the video games out there, they are using music played with real instruments as opposed to the synthesizers. And right. when we look back, um, one of the earliest formats that I know well, it was used primarily with a lot of the early PC games, but MIDI files. Oh, sure. Yeah. And which uh, is short for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And I have done some goofing around with making MIDI tracks. And 
it is actually a very fun medium to work with, even if you're not like a professional musician. So have you ever done any work with MIDI or are you familiar with the concept at all or the, the format um, rather? I haven't actually worked with it. However, I am very familiar with it. Um, I was kind of a, well, I still am a bit of a nerd in some respects. And back in the day when before kind of like MP, before MP3s and before wave files, when wave files were huge and they took forever to download people putting out songs on MIDI, like the Peter Gunn theme or uh, 3AM by, was it Semisonic? I think it is, or whatever the case is all of these actual legitimate songs people would play on like these MIDI keyboards and everything. And some of them would sound fantastic. Oh yeah. Like, like almost like radio worthy, but it was the best you could get. So I've got to, I'll be honest when, when you mentioned MIDI, I'm just like, Oh yeah, I still have a file of a ton of MIDI files. Same here. And see the thing though, the nice thing about MIDI is it had a really small file size. Right. The reason for that is MIDI doesn't contain any actual music. Um, A MIDI file is actually more akin to sheet music, where a MIDI file is going to have instructions for your your, your computer, where it'll tell you like, okay, play this note for, you know, this amount of time and take the audio from this channel. And there's, I think, in general MIDI, uh, there's like, I think, 128 different channels, or I'm sorry, um, different um, not channels, different options, but I think MIDI, it goes up to, I think 16 channels. I'm not sure on that, but, um, channel 10 was traditionally reserved for percussion. But the problem with MIDI is first of all, the quality of a MIDI file really depends on your keyboard. I'm sorry, not your keyboard, your computer, because remember when you're playing a MIDI file, it's just the instructions. So if you've got a craptacular sound card, (laughs) <laughs> then the MIDI file is going to sound like junk. Whereas sure, yeah. if you've got, you know, a higher quality so, um, you know, sound card, it can actually sound rather cool. And for many years, it was a more of a, well, one of the other reasons it could be a, a less than ideal format is until, I forgot the name of the group, but until they standardized MIDI, a file could sound completely different based on your computer because, you know, there were different channels and uh, each channel, you know, was assigned a different instrument, but there was for a while, there was no uniform uh, format for which instruments were assigned to, you know, which, uh, which selections. So for example, you know, the first selection on one uh, sound card might be violin, while mm-hmm. on another one, it might be a trumpet. So, <laughs> yeah, that could really kind of mess things up. You, I was going to say, it makes me think of like an example with this, be like listening to the song Tequila, you know, which is all dirty saxophone. Yep. And all of a sudden, somebody else's sound card would make it sound like it's being played on a violin. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And But that's one of the things that is fun about MIDI. Eventually, they did standardize it and created general MIDI, where now, like, I think it's like the first, like, 10 or so selections are pianos, and then, you know, always from this range to this range, it's going to be stringed instruments. From this range to this range, it's going to be brass and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that was fun about goofing around with MIDI files is, well, let's say you did have a MIDI of tequila, and it was, you know, the, the... the instruments that were selected were, you know, trying to simulate what the sound the song would really sound like. 
Well, if you wanted to, you could take the, you know, the saxophone part and switch it to the channel for an electric guitar and, you know, maybe take the guitar or the bass in the background and put those at strings. So, like I said, it could be kind of a fun uh, format to play around with, even if you weren't a, you know, a good musician. You know, and it was nice, too, because it did give everybody the chance to be an amateur musician or mixer, you know, I mean, because let's be honest. I mean, if you really want to get into it, like these people who are DJs and who do like sound mixing, look at any music video where they show them in the recording office and it's like launching a space shuttle. Oh, yeah. Um, Whereas with the MIDI, it was really nice because just like those little Yamaha keyboards and things, you press like 15 enter and that's a trumpet or you press 25 enter and that's a. Oh, and pipe organ or something like this. It may give you the option to be really uh, versatile with minimal training or, let's be honest, hardware. Yeah, and the program I used to goof around with was called Voyager Record Producer. And the nice thing about that was it could accept input. Well, you first of all, if you wanted to, you could go in and you could use your mouse to just you know draw a note and then put how long you want to hold it for. But it also had the MIDI input, so you could play on your MIDI keyboard, which is what I did, and then it would take the you know it would bring the music in. But let's say you hit a note too a little bit too long, or maybe you you know hit a you know hit two keys at once. You could mm-hmm. actually go in there and you could you know adjust the length of a note and how long it was held, or you could remove something if you accidentally you know hit a bad note or you know, you could even change the note itself. So that's why I was saying it was a really fun program to play around with. Yeah, it sounds like it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Nintendo have like a MIDI type thing called like the Miracle Learning System? Yes. Um, and I remember Angry Video Game Nerd, he did an episode on NES instru- accessories. And okay. I don't know if it was a MIDI keyboard and if it allowed you to actually record and save your music. But yes, it did have a thing that was, uh, it was supposed to help you learn how to play piano, but I'm not sure if it was a, if it was made by Nintendo or another company. Okay. I just, when I thought about that, I mean, with the hookups, that just kind of was one of the first things, especially with video game music that I thought of. Yeah. And eventually we moved on to sampling and I believe they're called MOD mod files. And this is where we started to get, well, you know, you had your synthesizers that uh, they were starting to program into computers and video games, but uh, what I believe they did in a lot of the early 16-bit games is they did the sampling where, you know, what you might do is you would record, let's say, 50 notes on a guitar. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you would use those samples to, you know, paste them together to create your, you know, your song, which gave a lot better sound quality than a MIDI would, could usually get, but it took up a lot more space. But the medium that they were dealing with also had a lot more space, too. I mean, anybody who looks at, like, a Nintendo cartridge versus a Super Nintendo cartridge, it's just, it's, it's just phenomenal yeah. if you think of, look at the difference. Yeah, and then uh, and eventually when we got to the CD era, that's where we could finally have the Red Book audio, which was your CD quality. And for a lot of uh, video game music programmers, this actually was a, a much better format because they didn't have to mess around with computer programs and learn how to use all these different programs they would you know they could just go into the studio and record you know music like they're used to now i I guess in the early days it could still be a little bit of a 
it, it could still be difficult on the system because you know the the laser in your your game device had to you know read the data from the game while also trying to play the music as well right so let's what i'd like to really kind of focus on is really the 8-bit and the 16-bit era because you know because once we started getting past the cartridge-based systems that's where video game music really became more versatile because you weren't necessarily programming the music you know once you had the red book audio format you could just go into the studio with a band or an orchestra or whatever and record so you know it, it actually became a lot you know like a professional music studio as opposed to some guy sitting there at a computer right so with the 8-bit era and this is where you know you think about it there's a lot of really good 8-bit music out there for the games of those eras and before we go on uh one thing i forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about midi there's a really good site that if you like listening to video game music there's a website called vgmusic.com and it's a site that people go and they contribute midi files that they make of different you know different video games so you'll find different remixes of the zelda theme or the super mario theme um, but definitely check it out if you have a chance. And it's funny you should mention that actually because I I have that one bookmarked already. Oh, <laughs> I've cool. been there many many times. Oh yeah. And so why do you think the popularity of some of these early tunes endured? Because you know I mean you think of the classic uh, theme from Super Mario Brothers. You know they still remix that and use it in a lot of the later games. You know, and I think part of it is that it's it's such a simple beautiful song and, and i'm going to explain that um I'm, I'm not snobby when it comes to the music but just with this one here it's like most people that i know grew up with that and i mean you could pick out of 10 people you could probably put them in a room and have them listen to this and i bet you eight out of ten if not nine or more would be able to tell you that's from super mario brothers yep because I mean, Mario, what is it, like Mario, Mickey Mouse, like uh, Bugs Bunny are like the three most well-known mascots or whatever. Oh, yeah. It's because, ever, like, regardless if you want to uh, admit to it or not, everyone has played some form of video games. And most likely, even if they don't anymore, like our friend Chad, who doesn't anymore, but he used to, has played Super Mario Brothers. Exactly. And it's it brings up – it's just a memory too because like for example me, I remember going to my cousin's house because I didn't have a Nintendo right away. We would get up really, really early before the cartoons would even start because that was – the crappy cartoons were at 5 o'clock like Bullwinkle. Didn't <laughs> care about that. And we would go into the room that had the Nintendo which was in the family room. Of course, we weren't supposed to be up. So we'd play it with the music really low but that the parents couldn't hear it and sit cross-legged playing the games. So, I mean, that's and that in itself is just a memory of my childhood that made me love Mario just a little bit more. Yeah, and, you know, funny you should mention it. Uh, my cousin was actually the one that got me into, you know, interested in uh, getting a Nintendo as well because um, I remember many, many, many years ago, uh, well, I used to live in New Berlin, and my cousin, he lived up in Appleton. Okay. And, well, you know, when we would... Usually when my family would come up to visit, we stayed over at a local hotel. But I remember there was one uh, day that, or one time we came up to visit where 
I asked if I could sleep over at his house. You know, and they let me, and, uh, you know, I remember we just stayed up late into the night playing, you know, Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda and Castlevania. So, yeah, he's actually the reason that I decided I wanted to get a, a Nintendo just because I had so much fun. And, I mean, a lot of my other friends at the time, they had Nintendo as opposed to a Sega Master System. Oh, so, sure. I mean, I, I've heard that Sega's, the Sega Master System sound card wasn't as powerful as the NES's sound card and capabilities, but like I said, I haven't really played a lot of Master System games, so I don't really have much to compare to. Sega, um, even going into the Genesis era, uh, the 16-bit, Sega has always been more of the sporting and graphics type, whereas Nintendo has always been more sound-oriented. Um, and that's that's very evident when you look at the Master System versus the 8-bit NES, as well as even the Super Nintendo versus um, versus the Genesis. And a prime example of that is uh, Mortal Kombat. Oh yeah, I mean you look at, you 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 look back at you know some of the games that were released for both the Super Nintendo and the Genesis. You know musically, most of the time the Nintendo actually had a lot better. Um, music and um, they're the angry video game nerd. Uh, mm-hmm. He did an episode where he was talking about the, I think it was the it was the Sega CD and the Sega 3D the Sega 3DX, and okay. he was comparing the Super Nintendo version of Doom to the the, uh, the the 3DX version of Doom, and that's one of his critiques is that you know he was he played a little bit of the you know the the music from the Super Nintendo. And a little bit from the Sega Genesis, I'm sorry, not the Genesis, the 32X. And yeah, there was a huge difference. And one of the reasons I think that, you know, when you look back, you have to really keep in mind the challenge back then. Because then, as I've, when I was reading some research for the, the show, the NES had five audio channels, but generally one of them was reserved for, uh, PCM music samples, and then the others were divided between music and sound effects. So the way that most programmers back then uh, would create their music is they tried to simulate a rock band where two of the channels were devoted to a lead guitar and a rhythm guitar. You had one for the bass, and then you had another one that was for percussion. And the thing that was challenging is, okay, you also had to consider that there were the sound effects. Oh, and sure. yeah. generally, you know, so you'll, you'll notice this if you listen carefully is sometimes when, when there's a, a big sound effect that plays, the music quality changes because, you know, like let's say you're going to have a sound effect of a, you know, like for Simon Belmont, you know, mm-hmm. snapping his whip. Well, whenever he snaps his whip, well, the you've only got four channels, so that sound effect has to go in one of those channels. So the programmer would have to decide, okay, which one of these channels is going to stop playing for that, you know, half a second or whatever while the sound effect plays. And so it, the composer had to be very thoughtful when they were composing the music for um, the games. And I remember reading, it was part of an interview with... Uh, and I, I apologize, I'm probably pronouncing his name, mispronouncing his name. Nobu Uematsu, 
he was the one who programmed a lot of the music for the Final Fantasy games. Okay, yeah. And oh, I love his music. He's probably one of my favorite video game programmers. But, you know, he was saying in an interview he was referring to some of the other people of the a of the, you know, the time. I think another one of the names he dropped a uh, Koji Kondo who the, was the, the Zelda and the Mario guy. Yep. And he was saying it's like, you know, we all essentially had the same four voices to work with. And you know, but it's it's kind of he he liked how you could kind of listen to see how you know each one what they did with the limited amount of resources they had. You know, and I have to say, and this just um, speaking of that, I'm just very impressed because music from the eight and sixteen bit era it still stands up. I mean, you can tell it's dated, but nowadays I think um, gamers are not gamers, but like video game programmers for music have it easy. They can just go in there, have an orchestra, write up their song, have somebody score it just like a movie and call it a day. Whereas back then, they actually had to work with not only the system limitations, but also had to come up with, you know, all of the software to use and everything else. It just it I have I, I'll be honest, I have a bit more respect for them back then than now, because not saying it's less work, um, just saying that it just seems they had it a little bit easier back then. Uh, now, now, I should say. <laughs> well, and you, you make a really good point, because. A lot of the one of the things you notice about a lot of the composers in the early years, usually they worked exclusively for one company, and that was because of the software they had access to. Because a lot of the 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 game companies back then, they had their own proprietary software that they used for composing music, and you can kind of notice that because, for example, Sunsoft. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sunsoft's games have a very distinct sound. And I would also say like um, Konami, you know, you can usually pick out an 8-bit Konami tune, Capcom. Mm -hmm. Um, So since, you know, since you had to learn how to use this proprietary software, generally you only worked for one company because let's say, you know, you programmed a, a song for a Konami game, then if you were to move over to Capcom, and try to program something there, you had, chances are you had to learn an entirely new uh, software program in order to compose that song. Right. And, I mean, later on, they did, uh, I mean, at least in, in Japan, they did introduce some special chips that they could use to improve the quality. And one of the games that comes to mind is Castlevania III. Um, because the Famicom had an extra chip that added a couple extra sound channels, which unfortunately couldn't be done for the, the the American release. So if you have a chance, I mean, if you go to YouTube, you know, you can find videos where it compares the sound between the Famicom version and the NES version. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the music from Castlevania three, but when I listen to the version I have, and compared to the version that they had on the Famicom, it's like, yeah, I'm jealous. <laughs> you know, and you mentioned the comparisons within the systems, and I was actually going to touch on um, the whole 8-bit or the 16-bit era. Um, Genesis and Super Nintendo, I don't know if you remember a game called Rock and Roll Racing. I love that game. I still have my copy for the NES. I, uh, I do too, actually. Or Super and, Nintendo, sorry, Super Nintendo. And I played it, and I was just impressed at how good, like, uh, was it um, Paranoid, Paranoid sounded? Yeah, they um, had... Bad uh, to the Bone. 
Uh, they had the, oh, the Peter Gunn theme. And there was – oh, and uh, was it Highway Star? Highway Star, yeah. Bad to the Bone, Highway Star, uh, Paranoid, um, Peter Gunn theme. And then the Genesis had one different song. But if you listen to those two next to each other, Genesis, in my opinion, just sounds like crap. Oh, yeah. And – oh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, and I just I, – I love – List, I love playing rock and roll racing, not just because it's a fun game, but just driving around mindlessly destroying things while listening to Black Sabbath on my Super Nintendo. <laughs> or as close to Black Sabbath as we can get on the Super Nintendo. Exactly. And and I'd have to say that, um, well, again, we, another thing we talk about when we're looking at the difference between uh, video game composers, uh, one of the articles I was reading talked about how there's also somewhat of a cultural aspect that we have to take into consideration because of course, different cultures are going to have different types of music theory. And the article was comparing uh, like Japanese video game music with American video game music and how a lot of times the composition or the music theory varied where Japanese music focused more on the soloist and mm-hmm. everything else was kind of just there in the background to support it, whereas a lot of Western composition styles tended to focus on the big picture. So it would be like, you know, let's say we we're composing a song in the, you know, Eastern m- music theory, uh, you might say take a violin piece and you're focusing primarily on how that violin is going to sound and the rest of the orchestra, they're just there to support it. Whereas, you know, Western music theory, it's more based on, you know, I said the big picture, how the entire orchestra is going to sound when playing together. So, you know, maybe in in one of the the styles, you can take the violin part out and it's still going to sound really good. Whereas in the Western style, it's like, you know, you take out the individual part. It's not going to sound as impressive. And I can buy that. Um, and another thing, too, and I have to say this, I mean, I've gotten a few of my game soundtracks, um, Japanese imports, because it's just not a popular thing in the U.S. At least it didn't used to be. It's picking up steam. Uh, not God yet. Now you can even find things on iTunes, which oh, back yeah. when iTunes was brand new, it's like you had to be like hiding in a corner underneath this. I'm like, I'm buying a game soundtrack. Don't judge me. <laughs> um, but now it's just like, oh, look, it's this game that's out there. Oh, look, it's this game that's out there. Um, but where I was going with this is that, in fact, um, I don't know how much of a, if you're a Sega or a Nintendo person, but I played the hell out of Super Smash Brothers. And they had a Nintendo Power thing where they had the entire soundtrack for Super Smash Brothers on the GameCube that was done by the Japanese Philharmonic. And they had a full audience, like, a, like imagine like your, like your Alpine Theater completely packed with people listening to video game music done by an orchestra. Oh yeah. Whereas, you know, I mean, now they've got like video games live with Tommy Tallarico, I mm-hmm. believe it is. Yes. Um, he's, he's big, but I mean, it's not like your trans Siberian orchestra. Whereas over in Japan, that's like a huge thing. People get dressed up for it. They clap along. I mean, it's, it's just a difference in culture. And that's something that I believe that would be, it's a great thing that is moving over here. Yeah. We'll just put it that way. Lou, um, can I share a deep, dark secret with you and the, the, the listening audience? Sure. Back when I was around middle school, what I used to do is when there was a video game that had a, sound, a song that I really, really liked, 
what I used to do, because I had a paper out back then, I used to take a cassette recorder. I'd pop in a blank tape and I would, you know, put it in front of my, my TV and I would record the video game music to listen to when I was taking a walk or when I was on my, uh, on my paper route. So I, I know a lot, of, you know, it's kind of a geeky thing to do. But yeah, I still have some of those tape, you know, those mixtapes of video game music that I made when I was a kid. And so it's like, yeah, I was kind of into that, you know, way back then. So do I sound like a hipster? Uh, I'm going to say no. And the only reason is because I still have my cassette tapes also. (laughs) (laughs) So you did it too, where you, uh, you would uh, record video game music onto your cassette tapes. I absolutely did. In fact, actually later on when the super came out, I had that run through my stereo. So like F zero, for example, I actually would be able to record that through the stereo with the, with the stereo cords. So, oh my God, yeah, I still have my tapes. <laughs> uh, dude, that's awesome. And yeah, I still got a bunch of them, but unfortunately those tapes didn't really age very well. But yeah, that that's that's cool to know that I'm not the only one who did that where, and, and again, because some of it was just really good music. And, I, you know, and I think it's, and, and I could see it's a uh, part of it is because the composer really had to put a lot of thought into it, you know, especially in the 8-bit days because of all the limitations they had to work with. But I think another reason that can that makes programming music for a video game difficult is you have to consider that you you know if you've got a stage that let's say it's going to take you two minutes to you know to uh, to finish you know you want to make sure that the music is something that you can stand to listen to for those two minutes without getting so you know without getting so annoyed by it you want to smash your speakers. And, the, you know, there's a flip side of that too, and there's the other, the flip side is that if the stage, well, and I think I think what your point is more so for longer stages. My what I'm thinking is that let's say you create this grand opus for a stage, but you only hear two minutes of it. It's like you know what I've got like a maybe like a five minute piece that doesn't repeat until it hits like three and a half minutes, and you only do it as a transition. You hear like a minute of it. It's like well, <laughs> what did I just do that for? You know? Yeah, exactly, and um. Yeah, so that's one of the other unique challenges, I think, with making video game music is, yeah, you got to make something that's going to be enjoyable to listen to. Um, And, of course, one game that I think really pulled it off successfully was Legend of Zelda with the overworld theme. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many hours I spent wandering around the land of Hyrule in that game, and I never got sick of the overworld theme. No, I I have to say that um, that is probably one of the most well-known of the Nintendo era. I mean, God, they're still using it pretty much in every Zelda game they've ever made. Yeah. Um, and it, it works. You're exactly right. It's not one where the only time you're really going to mute it is if <laughs> you are trying to hide from your parents. But... <laughs> and another, you know, of course, another style of game where you, you really have to hire a really talented composer are role-playing games, um, especially because, you know, battle themes. You know, you think about it, a lot of those old school role playing games involved walking around in circles and getting into fights and killing enemies until you had enough experience points to, you know, beat the next boss. Oh, I hate grinding. <laughs> yeah, I know. So you, you think about it, that battle theme in that RPG, well, you're probably going to have to listen to that song hundreds of times. You know, and you're right. Um, and then of course they're going to have to have a special boss theme, yep. which, you know, you can tell that there's something going on. Um, one game, and I don't know if you've played this cause it's kind of a cult classic. I fell in love with it. The moment I played it was earthbound. Oh yeah. I played it. <laughs> 
And Earthbound itself, um, it's one of those where you've got, oh God, uh, just a really a weird assortment, like, you know, crazy hippie and like old lady with handbag and things. And you could literally go from one side of the map to the other and you'll hear five different themes of just regular fights. And then of course, every boss has their own theme as well. So I think they did really well with that as in addition to what you're saying as well as seeing that grinding music over and over again. But they switched it up where they put even more into it, and I think that was just great. Yeah, exactly. And um, So going back to the 8-bit era, what are some games that really did it for you as far as their music? Oh, um, you know, I mean, obviously we could go with the standards, you know, Mario and Zelda, but everyone's going to answer those because really if they're not towards the top 10 of every list, then I don't think you've played video games before. Can I be honest? With Super Mario Brothers, I never actually really got into the Super Mario Brothers music until Mario 64. Because honestly, I'm not saying that the music in the games before then were bad. It's just they didn't they didn't hit me in the way that the the music for Mario 64 did. But but I agree. I mean, there's there's a lot of good music in the uh, in the uh, Mario library. You know, and the best of the 8-bit games, everyone is pretty close to saying that 3 is the best of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think the best music of all of them was number 2, which wasn't truly a Mario game. I don't know. I, I said the, the music for 2 really didn't do it for me very much. Um, yeah, just it... I don't know. I, I think it was a little too high-pitched for me. Maybe that's why okay. I never really... I never really got into the the music for Mario 2 or which you know of course a lot of people know that's just the localized version of Doki Doki Panic which um, I wish I could play. I mean honestly if I could find a version without having to import a Famicom I would love to play that. Yeah, there's probably a it's probably on an emulation site out there somewhere but um Now so- getting getting back to your question um I would say I think Ninja Gaiden if that's how you pronounce it was one of my favorites. It was one of them that I enjoyed enough and getting back to the whole recording it off the TV that when I found out that they had a cheat from Nintendo Power, of course, that let you listen to the music without actually playing the game, I was overjoyed. Same here. Um, That was one of them. um, DuckTales. Oh, DuckTales, yep. DuckTales, just not only because of the theme, they 8-bitized that one, but then just some of them like the Moon theme, the Amazon theme, uh, Transylvania was entertaining. Um, even when they rebooted it in, I believe it was 2013, they actually even give you the option to listen to the 8-bit versions. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and I've got, yeah, the DuckTales HD, and that has got to be one of the best remakes I've ever played. And the music, oh, I mean, yeah, it's just amazing what they did with the music, especially the Moon stage and the Transylvania stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's almost as much as I love the originals. It's almost hard to not want to listen to the new one, you know. Oh yeah. Um, oh, let's see what other ones. I mean, everyone's gonna say Bloody Tears from Castlevania Two. However, I like the redone version for Castlevania Four on the Super NES. Oh yeah, it's the same piece, but they just add more of an orchestration to it, which again is a limitation of hardware. Um, but Bloody Tears and then Vampire Killer from, I believe that one is Castlevania 1. Yep. Those are just ones that, I mean, I'll, I could sit there. If you could pause the game and listen to the music by itself, of course, now because I have the CDs, I can. Um, I would. Yeah. And 
Legend of Zelda, that was definitely one of my favorites from the 8-bit era. Uh, Castlevania, I'd have to say one of the pieces that really always put a shiver down my spine was... I forgot the name of the song, but it's the one that appears when you're in the the first part of a Frankenstein monster stage when okay. it's this kind of like deep pitch, you know, low pitched, creepy song. And it's cause you know, you just fell down this long shaft and you know, now you're in, you know, this, uh, this underwater or this underground area. So okay. I always thought that really, you know, that one really worked well. It kind of started off with like a really fast version of jaws, almost like a dun, 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 yeah. dun, 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 dun. Okay. I know which one you're talking about. Yep. Uh, Vampire Killer, of course, and uh, Castlevania Three. That one always stood out for me. Uh, the beginning, the first, you know, the first stage song. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that one. Um, Mad Forest. That was another good one. Um, the Clock Tower stage. Journey to Silius. Oh gosh, I'm I'm going to give you props right now because not many people know about that game, and that is one of my all-time favorite games. Oh yeah, and. The, the reason I wanted to get that game is I was actually hanging out at a friend of mine um, who I played D&D with, and we were waiting for someone you know to, to show up for the game session, and he popped in Journey to Silius. And when I heard the music, I'm like, I have to get this game. I don't care if it sucks. I just want to listen to that first stage music. <laughs> I remember mine was, um, this was when I was a kid in Wausau. And I remember getting something in the mail, some kind of um, there was like some class action lawsuit or something with Nintendo that they sent everybody like get ten dollars off a game or something like yeah, this. I remember that. And, too. and so we went to Shopco and they had a discount bin of games and brand new. They had Journey to Silius. I'm like, the graphics look cool. And of course, um, you can't really tell the music of the game unless you rent it just by looking at the game. So I'm just like, you know what? The graphics look cool. It looks like it'd be a fun game. I'll give it a shot. And I have never looked back. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I, I'll give say this. Sunsoft, generally speaking, and there's a few exceptions, like Fester's Quest, has good music. Batman, the video game, I is liked... incredible. Oh, yeah. Batman. I don't know. I really like the main theme from Fester's Quest. But, uh, yeah, the Batman, the uh, Sunsoft Batman game, that had really good music as well. Uh, Blaster Master. That's another one that has really good music to it. That especially that opening theme, how it ramps up and then it just gets going. Yeah, you know, I never made it really past the first part in that game, but I like the music and that I did hear in it. <laughs> That's. I think you're in, you're in the same boat as I am. I kind of played the first stage for the music and then I'm like, eh, okay. Yep. And another game that I think it's a little bit more of one of those obscure games, or it never really got too huge of a following. River City Ransom. Okay. Yeah. And, the music, the main music that plays in that game, it's it has the same effect for me as the overworld theme from Legend of Zelda, where even though it's the same theme you hear through most of the game, it's still, it doesn't get annoying. And I mean, just other than that, River City Ransom is just a really fun game, you know, in the first place. Sure. Um, another one that it was for me was I really enjoyed the Capcom Bionic Commando. Oh, yeah. Yep. It was supposed to be, it's, you know, touted as the arcade hit, which if you've ever played the arcade version, it's completely different. Oh, I mean, no the only kidding. thing that's the same is the fact that he has a bionic arm. Um, but the well, music, got the I, bionic arm in both of them, but, um, yeah, the, 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 the NES one is a lot better because I, at least you can build up a life meter. Whereas and there's a point. Yeah. 
Whereas in the, the arcade version, it's like, you know, one hit, you're dead. And, and like I mentioned, there's a point. I mean, whereas the arcade one, it's just kind of the same stage over and over again. And you just have to get from one end to the door and that's it. If my, if my memory serves, the uh, Nintendo version, you actually had to go through a map from area zero to area 12, if memory serves. Um, and each different level was something different. I mean, granted, they repeated a little bit of the music, but I think it worked. Yeah, and that you are right about that. It had an overhead map, and sometimes you would fight the enemy because they ambush you. Uh, the other thing that was challenging about that game is you had like an item and a weapon and a transceiver that I guess, though, if you took the wrong item into the the area, you couldn't complete it. So there was a little bit of a trial and error in there. There was that, and then there was the transceivers. There was four different colors, and if you didn't bring the right one in, then when you tried to listen on the radio, it would just say, ga, ga, ga. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the other part, and this is part of the also the Nintendo hard part of it, was there was no save. There was no password. It was either you sit down and you play the whole damn thing to the end, or you give up. Yeah, or if uh, you got to take a break, you pause the game turn off the TV and go take a walk for a couple hours and pray to God. Nobody kicks the Nintendo and resets the darn thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'd have to say that when we move from the eight bit to the 16 bit era, and again, some people are probably going to laugh at me when they hear me say this, but when I first heard 16 bit, super Nintendo music, I thought when I saw the graphics and music on a super Nintendo, I thought there's no way video game music and graphics are going to get any better than this. And I'd have to – well, do you remember what the first 16-bit game you saw was, saw or played? Um, yes, actually, and saw was Mario World because the Pepsi had a huge promotion where with all of their 12-packs, they had like codes for it and like they had Yoshi on everything and they had commercials with it. But played was F-Zero. Okay, because for me, um, the first one that I saw – and I think it would end up being the first one I played was Final Fantasy II, which, of course, we know now is four. Right. And when we're talking about – the thing that I liked about the 16-bit era is now the music, it started to move away from being just the, you know, the bloops and the bleeps to actually sounding like real music. And one of the games – well, there's – well, a lot of the role-playing games for the Super Nintendo, again, mm -hmm. they just boom. They hit you. Um, so the first one I saw, I think, was Final Fantasy. Yeah, Final Fantasy two, and I don't remember if that was the first one I played, or it may have been uh, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which I dug Mystic Quest. I got that for a super sale at KB when I worked there, and it was like nine dollars. I'm like, okay, I really didn't get into Final Fantasy because role playing, I was more about the action and whatever. And I'm like, this is kind of the perfect action RPG. Yeah, and I loved it, and it got hard. Yeah, and I mean, I did an episode about it, you know, a while ago. Um, and yeah, I think personally, I think that Mystic Quest is one of the underrated games for the Super Nintendo, and the music is definitely the strong point. And the thing that the main there's a couple main criticisms that people have about it. The first one is its level of it's you know it's not really a very difficult RPG. But then again, it's like, okay, come on, guys. It says right on the flipping box that it's for the entry-level role player. Because right. at this time, 
you know, role-playing games really hadn't found their market in American video game audiences. You know, and you know, it, like entry level, it just makes me think of people expecting role master and getting like D and D. You know, it's like yeah. no, <laughs> you got to start somewhere, and this is where you start. Yeah, and you know, and the other thing, and this is off topic because it doesn't have anything to do with music, but whenever I see any video on YouTube where they criticize Final Fantasy, they usually criticize how instead of displaying traditional hit points, it shows a bar, you know, a life bar. And, sure. you know, people always rip on that. It's like, hello, one of the options in the menu, if you bother to look, you can change it from a gauge to numbers. Why but, are but you complaining about that? To complain about. Exactly. But, I mean, again, <laughs> once you get past the fact that Mystic Quest is not a difficult RPG, the music in that game is phenomenal. You know, oh, yeah. You've got, you know, hard rocking metal pieces and you've got jazzy pieces and then you've also got some quieter, you know, classical. And I'd have to say still the the final stage music, as well as the last bat, the, the last boss, mm -hmm. hands down, two of my favorite video game songs ever. You know, and um, I it's been such a long time since I played that game. I might have to uh, fire up the emulator for it. Um, me, I like, I love the music from F-Zero. I, I've, to this day, I still listen to the music from F-Zero and when they remixed it, remixed it for Smash Brothers Brawl and for Melee, I was thrilled because I think like Big Blue and Sand Ocean Silence, I thought those are great pieces. Um, and of course, Mute City. Pilot Wings, Pilot Wings and Star Fox. You know, some of the more uh, Star Fox was later, but Pilot Wings, I want to say, is one of the release games for this for the Super Nintendo. And it was great. I mean, not only did the music fit what you were trying to do, like if you're parachuting or if you're driving, flying a biplane or whatever the case is, but it was also just it was just so appropriate for what you're doing, like if you're floating or if you're actually trying to hit things on time. And then Star Fox, I mean, you wanted to be in the thick of battle. I mean, it just worked out well, and then Slippy the Toad just kind of messed it all up. <laughs> yeah, and I, I did enjoy Star Fox and F-Zero for the music, but those are examples of games that I never really was very good at playing. And, I mean, maybe I got, like, you know, one or two stages in, but still, I, I always enjoyed watching other people play it just to listen to the music. Okay. Um, and, of course, whenever we're talking about really awesome video game music, there's... Well, especially if you're an RPG fan, there's two video games we have to talk about. Um, can you guess what those are? I'm going to guess one is going to be Chrono Trigger. Yep. Um, Secret of Mana? Well, uh, Secret of Mana is more of an action RPG, but yeah, it did have really good music as well. Final Fantasy 3 slash 6. Okay, Final Fantasy three. That was, I think, that's the rare one, isn't it? The one that like is super expensive to buy now. Well, it's super expensive. It wasn't really rare back then. Um, but you know, of course, it's Final Fantasy six now. But um, it, it is still one of those games that does go for uh, top dollar on the secondary market because it's a really good game. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I would go out and spend a hundred dollars on it, especially if you've got like a, a Wii because you can get it now on the Wii virtual console for like eight, nine bucks. Right. Um, so, but yeah, it's one of those games where it's not, 
I mean, it's probably rare because it hasn't been produced in a while, but sure. it is expensive, but it is still a really fun game. What And before we get into your music, I just have to ask, what are your thoughts of Mario RPG? I haven't really played it. I mean, I've seen a friend of mine play it a little bit, and it looked okay, but I've never actually played it. The It's, it's also a very whimsy musical one. Um, I think Square and... Square and Nintendo worked really well. It was a very good marriage between the Mario and the RPG. Um, if you get a chance to play it, you if there's a there's a secret hidden boss, it's kind of out in the open, but you have to do something to get to it. It has the boss music from Final Fantasy thrown in there. Oh, cool! Which uh, which Final Fantasy? Oh gosh, it's Culex. Um, and if I, God, I don't want to do it because I know which one. I know you know which one I'm talking about. Um. I think it's Final Fantasy 2 or slash 4. Okay. Is, but, I mean, it's the Culex boss. If you Even if you YouTube it, you'll know, you'll hear it and you'll see it. And it's it's one, it's the boss looks just like a Final Fantasy boss as opposed to like a Mario cartoon. Oh, cool. And it's hard. It is hard. <laughs> um, but getting to listen to the music is just, it just brings you back. Oh, yeah. And... So what are some other games for the 16-bit era? Of course, Castlevania. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we only had two Castlevania games for the uh, Super Nintendo, but both of them had really, really good music. Um, especially with the thing I liked about Super Castlevania 4 is how they did remix some of the older songs, like mm-hmm. Beginning and uh, you know Vampire Killer and uh, Bloody Tears. Yep. Um and I and I have to say, let's see, um, Donkey Kong Country and Donkey Kong Country Two. Rare did just knocked out of the park with the music. Okay, and so when we talk about video game music, and you know, of course, we're talking about how sometimes we say that the music really hits us. It for you, how do you define that? Where we say that the music just hits. You know, it's for me, it's a kind of a twofold thing. The first one is if I can listen to it, and as you mentioned before, and not get sick of it. Because there's something where you listen to it a little bit, like, oh, this is cool. And we're like, okay, I'm getting tired of this. This yeah. is stupid. <laughs> um, and it's also the appropriateness. You know, as I mentioned, like with Pilot Wings, it's one where if I'm listening to this and if I'm, if I'm Scott hang gliding, let's say, I'm hang gliding through you know, over the plains and I'm seeing like the mountain, like plateaus and things all over the place. And there's like this hard rock music going on. It's like, eh, not really appropriate. It might be cool, but it's not really what I'm going for. So if it's a good piece of music that sticks with me um, because it's appropriate and because it just fits, I think that's what kind of really does it for me. And then of course the ter- tertiary would be kind of, if it just sounds good. Yeah. And I mean, I think what makes a really good piece of video game music is if it makes that impression because it captures the mood and to again go back to super mario brothers the original one the you know it didn't have a lot of different stage musics you had your main overworld one you had your underworld one there was the underwater theme and then the castle music so just to just to interrupt you for a second of those four which are which is your favorite actually i would have to say the underwater theme Okay, I can buy that. Uh, kind of uh, floaty. I mean, you, it gives you the impression of floating along. Yeah. Yep. And because I said I couldn't see the you know the main overworld theme really working in the underworld because well you know it's it, it's an upbeat peppy song. It mm-hmm. doesn't really capture the mood of you know swimming away from the cheap cheeps and the 
uh, octopus, whatever they are. Oh, uh, bloopers. Bloopers, yep. So uh, another, but yeah, those are, that's the main thing that really does it for me is if it really, you know, captures the mood of, you know, the, the game. But then as you were also saying, another thing that uh, you got to consider is whether it just appeals to you. It just sounds good. And I mean, I'm not sure if there's any, been really any scientific type studies as to why some people like certain types of music, but I, I'm sure there's probably some scientific reason why, you know, I enjoy the sound of, you know, a wailing guitar, but there might be other instruments or other types of music, which doesn't have the same emotional effect on me. Right. And you know what? Anybody listening to this, if you have lines in this kind of study, um, we have two willing participants right here who would be more than happy to help <laughs> out with that. Yes, exactly. And and, and before we move on, um, when we were talking about Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, um, another, one artist I'd like to recommend, Daniel Tidwell. I discovered some of his music on uh, eMusic, and I think he's also got some of his stuff on iTunes, but he makes you know, heavy metal mixes of video game music. And he's mm-hmm. done stuff from Chrono Trigger, uh, Final Fantasy, DuckTales, Mega Man. But my favorite album that he did, he has one called The Mystic Quest for Metal, where he does nice. five of the tracks from uh, from Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. So, you know, since both of us kind of had that common bond there and that we like that music, sure, that's something you should definitely check out. And you know what I was wondering? What if we're like long lost brothers or something? <laughs> that would actually be really, really interesting. I know my family, I've got lots of family down in the Milwaukee area. So like based, like aunts and uncles and everything else, that's where my parents originally came from. So it, it, <laughs> stranger things have happened. We'll just go there. Yes. Um, what I was going to mention, you talked about the YouTube. There's another couple artists. I mean, of course, you've heard of like the one-ups and the advantage and, and bands like that. Yeah. Um, there's a dude that's out there. His name is Smooth McGroove. He's just long. I mean, like down to his middle of his chest beard. He does acapella versions of all these. And so he's got, you know, they split the screen like nine different places where he's doing a different part in each one. I would definitely recommend he does a lot of 16 bit and forward, but he does like um, he did the Dr. Wiley music from Mega Man 2 and he did it. And he did it all acoustically. And, of course, he brought his cat in in one of the videos. It was kind of goofy. But it is definitely worth a listen. Yeah, and Daniel Tidwell, he also does a cover of the uh, first part of Dr. Wily's Castle from Mega Man 2, which I don't believe I think that's for- the one. I think that's the one we're talking about, the same. Yeah, and I don't believe we forgot. I don't believe we forgot to mention it. That's one of the greatest pieces ever. And um, his version, he calls it Dr. Wily Created Rock and Roll. And awesome. it is just, like I said, it is awesome. Go check out some of Daniel Tidwell's stuff. Uh, you know, you probably won't be disappointed. And no, um, I don't know the guy. He's not paying me to uh, plug his stuff here. I just want to let you all know that it's a it's a musician I discovered, and I uh, bought some of his albums, and I'm very happy with what I've purchased so far. But <laughs> and I was going to say, um, Brental Floss. If you've seen him on there, he does like the "What if this song had lyrics?" He'd like the the Wiley music. Oh yeah, and he made up funny lyrics to it. Um, those are kind of fun to listen to as well. But like I said, if, if you get a chance, um, check out the Smooth and Groove on YouTube. And then also another thing, do you remember playing with Mario Paint? Oh, yeah. There are people who use, there's a Mario Paint program for Windows and Mac that they do like modern songs and things on this Mario Paint. And I'm just like, how the hell do you do this? 
I mean, it sounds amazing. It does, and because I've seen some of those, and oh yeah, there was another. Um, there was another group I, I was going to mention. Um, mini bosses. I know they're. I think they're one of the older, uh, you know, video game music groups where they would do the rock and roll arrangements of different songs. Because I right. know they've been active since at least the late nineties. So they're one of the get. They're. I'm not sure if they're still active, but they're one of the first bands I've ever heard that would do the, you know, the arrangements of video game music. I want to say I have some of their music. Um, I actually have one of the CDs of the advantage who also do the eight bit Nintendo music. And it's, if you're into that style, I mean, it's absolutely worth giving a listen to it. At very least check it on iTunes or uh, Amazon, however you want to download your music, but it's totally worth it. Well, I think we're going to draw this episode to a close as we've gone on quite a bit about the some of the video game music that has inspired us over the years. So tune in next time for part two. For now, though, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.